Hello and welcome to yet another episode of the Everything's Been Done podcast, Conversations on Cycling Subculture. I'm your host, Dustin Klein, and today's episode is brought to you by the new DCO Sticker Packs. These are the newest of new, the hottest of hot, the freshest of fresh. The DC Sticker Packs are a a pack of 10 stickers, three color on clear. We got some bonus guys on there. This is the perfect way to turn anything, maybe a bicycle, into your very own commotion camo thingamarig. To get your very own DCO sticker packs, head over to DustinKlein.com slash shop. (sighs) Okay, the good stuff's out of the way. Let's get to the dessert. Today's guest is... Oh, I'm very excited about this guy. Ooh. You probably already know about this one. He is a professional counterculture athlete, a prolific doodler, and I say that with the highest regard, and one of the biggest purveyors of Stoke I have ever had the pleasure of meeting. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome. Oh, oh, before I do that, you can find this fine gentleman at notchaz.com and at notchaz on Instagram. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Chaz Christensen. Hello, Chaz. The real Chaz. <laughs> the re- opposed to which one's the fake one? Well, not really Chaz is in there somewhere too, but this is, this is the real Chaz. I'll let you figure out which one's the fake one later. Dude, for so long, I thought it was Noches. I didn't know that was actually you. It was like a play on nachos. It's like, what kind of cheese isn't your cheese? Nacho cheese. And then somebody actually had nachos taken as an Instagram handle. So it kind of just became this thing where nachos was close enough to nachos that just kind of made it work. I can dig it. I can dig it. Um, you have been doing, well, actually, how, how, how are you holding up right now? How are, how are things? Things are good. I mean, it, it's 75 degrees. The sun is shining. I just finished installing a bike rack that I bought on Craigslist under the roof of this new GTI we got. Um, I can't really complain. I really, my heart goes out to the people that are self sheltering in place and quarantining where they can't go outside or where it's like really kind of nasty outside. But luckily here in Oakland, California, it's it's kind of just been like perma summer for the last two months. So or 200 all years, all, a thousand yeah, years. Good. Yeah. I, don't, I guess it's been two months. I don't even know. Right. What is time anymore? What do we even do? <laughs> I like this. I like this. Um, I guess get just real quick, I wanted let's just start from the beginning. So you were born in the Pacific Northwest, is that true? Yeah, Eugene, Oregon, actually. And Sacred that, Heart Hospital. I was wondering that. Okay, Eugene. And then where did you grow up, like your formative years? Formative years were Olympia, Washington. So I lived in Eugene until I was in second grade and then moved to Olympia, Washington. Well, caveat. I moved to Lacey, Washington, which is basically connected to Olympia, Washington, but no one's ever heard of it. So I just say Olympia because I essentially grew up in Olympia, but I went to high school in Olympia, Washington. And then uh, I actually had a whole life plan. I was gonna, I got accepted to the Merchant Marine Academy. I I wanted to see the world. And I was like, I'm gonna, you know, work on a Merchant Marine ship. And that's a great way to see the world. And then uh, I actually got arrested for writing graffiti on the abandoned Olympia brewery. Uh, like the summer after high school. So in between graduating high school and shipping off to go be a merchant marine, I got arrested for writing graffiti on an abandoned brewery. Uh, and that kind of totally took my life into a, a different path, um, which is rad because I love my life now, but I definitely, had I not been arrested, 
uh, for doing something pretty stupid, I probably wouldn't be here right now. Fascinating. Yeah, very interesting. So then I guess you get arrested. You're they don't allow people in the Marines then once they're arrested or something? I, I wouldn't know. Well, I mean, it's it was the Merchant Marines. It's not like the Marines. I wasn't going to like go join the military. It was uh, Merchant Marines are like the big cargo ships. Um, you basically get certified to work on like the container ships. And uh, oh. my eventual goal was to be a, a pilot for a container ship. They don't call them. I guess I wouldn't, didn't want to be the captain, but I wanted to be the one that steered the ship. Whoa. Uh, you know, massive super tankers. So to do that, you had to go to the academy. Um, but it wasn't like military service or anything. It Got was it. just how you, your certification. Um, but yeah, they don't, they don't really, aren't that stoked on people who get graffiti <laughs> felony. <laughs> uh, so I actually had the, it was, a, it was a bummer at first, but it wasn't, I guess. I had to stay home. I was the guy that, you know, graduated from high school and everyone else went and did stuff. And I stayed home and did like, you know, a couple thousand hours of community service, uh, worked in soup kitchens all over Olympia, getting my community service hours, wow. had to work a bunch of jobs. I worked, a, I drove a tractor on a warehouser tree farm and I worked at Zoomies in the mall and I worked at Best Buy at three jobs. And I had to go to school full time at the community college to satisfy this like uh, deferment program where they would take the felony off my record. So I spent actually the whole year after high school, 2000, I graduated in 2003. So I spent until 2004 summertime working off this uh, graffiti charge. Uh, but I got it off my record, no felony and everything. And then, and then I just packed everything I had. I owned really into a, what was it? A 92 Chevy Cavalier convertible. It was like a little Barbie car kind of. Little convertible what Chevy. the fuck? I just drove, I just drove around for like six months. Cause I was so bummed. I had to, you know, I got stuck at home after graduated from high school, had all these dreams of all the seeing the world and all this. And then it was like, Nope, I'm just going to go like work on a farm and drive a tractor and like go do community service in your spare time for a whole year. So I just got in this car and just drove around uh, pretty much all the West coast and like kind of uh, middle America for like six months. And then ended up in Denver, Colorado with where some friends lived and was like, well, I should probably go to, back to college, but all I really want to do is snowboard. And it was either Denver, Colorado, or Portland, Oregon. Uh, and then Portland ended up winning out just because I'm from the West Coast. My, my mom still lives up in Olympia, friends and stuff. And I just wanted a mountain that was close. And Mount Hood was there. So I ended up moving to Portland. Uh, and I lived in Portland for the next, like, six or seven years. But just to snowboard. I mean, I rode bikes, kind of. But really, I was like a snowbum. I just wanted to snowboard all the time. Yeah. See, I never knew that snow was your background. That's really interesting. And well, skateboarding and snowboarding, actually. I, I skated my whole life growing up, snowboarded. I snowboarded in high school. I raced for my high school border cross uh, snowboard team, Whoa. which was, yeah, it was, it was rad. It was, it was a good time. I got pretty good at it. Uh, it's actually really funny, though, because when I got to Portland and I, I lost my driver's license, <laughs> because I was trying to drive up to go snowboarding in Crystal Pass, Washington, and it had been suspended because I had like 22 speeding tickets. Other story, uh, they took it away. So I started riding a bike. I was washing dishes at this restaurant in downtown Portland. And uh, I turned over, you know, find out about alley cats. I like built my first fixed gear out of like a conversion and everything. But then one of the people that was racing alley cats in Portland at the time was Scotty Whitlake, uh, who was a messenger in Portland. But Scotty Whitlake, for those that are not in the know, was like this incredibly famous snowboarder. He like kind of right before snowboarding really blew up, he was the one that was doing all of the crazy stuff. He had the best style. He wasn't super tech, but he was just like a hard charger crusher of a dude. And I knew him from snowboarding because I was like, I used to see him up on Mountain Hood. I was like, Susan Arley, 
And then I was like, wait, you race alley cats? You ran track bikes? He had a, oh. a three Rencho built. It was a US Olympic track frame that was built by San Rencho. So it was like an unbranded three Rencho. And he would race alley cats and win. He would like ride on the freeway and just, you know, kind of take the same kind of char hard charger style he had from snowboarding and like ride track bikes. And that was actually something that really got me into track bikes was the snowboarding connection. And then finding out that this dude that I like idolized as a snowboarder rode track bikes and raced alley cats. Yeah. And then a, 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 so a few things that are funny about Scotty Witt, like he is like punk as fuck. Oh yeah. But the other thing is he was like sponsored by DC at one point. Like it, it's just like amazing and kind of confusing. And I think for him, it was kind of, difficult too because it's like kind of big shiny sponsor but he's like punk as fuck so Dude, this... he donated like most of his money that he made from all of his sponsors to food not bombs whoa I mean, he bought a house he bought a house in southeast portland because he used to throw alley cats from there but then like he totally dropped out of the snowboard scene at the height of his like fame and career had all these sponsors donated all of his money basically to food not bombs he became a bike messenger um, and I remember hearing about him from Alley Cats, but then like he rode from Portland to New York on a track bike in like 30 days, which is like a backpack, you know, and then like, cool. and then he rode, this was for Philly Knack, and then he rode from New York to Philadelphia to race in the Philly Knack. And he was like a big inspiration for like, not only racing Alley Cats, but like me and a buddy, uh, Will, uh, who actually still lives in Portland and works for the company Rider GPS, uh, we rode our track bikes to Chicago for the Knack in 2008. Because Scotty did it. We were like, I mean, Scotty, Scotty rode his track bike across the country. Like, we could totally do that, too. So it's funny that snowboarding was something that really, like, had a lot of connection to, like, track bikes and, like, the stuff I do on, on bikes now. Yeah, very interesting. Hey, do you keep in contact with that dude at all? Yeah, a little bit. Oh, Him cool. and his partner built a modified Toyota pickup the same year that I have. And they actually have the same engine swap that I have on my Toyota. But they've been touring through uh, all the way through Central America, and they made it into South America. But they've been living out of their truck on this perpetual like rad tour for the last two and a half years. Wow. So I follow him on Instagram, and then we correspond a little bit through like the DMs and stuff. But yeah, um, he's still killing it. Does he? He seems like someone that would not have an Instagram account. Is that true? <laughs> I think that his partner is the one that runs a lot. Okay, that seems, yeah. That, and I say that more to just kind of, for people that don't know what, like, just to kind of get an idea of, like, the type of cloth he's cut from is, like, it's he's, I want to say pure, not that, not doing social media is pure, but. Dude, Scotty's, Scotty's a very pure dude, I would say. I always remember I would, I would be driving that super shitty convertible up to Mount Hood to go skateboarding. <laughs> like, I would just put on all of my gear Goggles, beanie, everything, and drive up there with the top down. Oh, my God. Jeep that had like no rear window and like a tarp flapping off the back. And it was just lifted crazy Jeep. And you just see him like he just you could tell he just crashed on the back of the Jeep. It is geared. You just see him like wake up and then like, you know, he didn't even really party that much. But he just kind of like stumbled to the lift. And you could tell that, that was like his cup of coffee. So he just like woke up in his rig and then like going to go get his first run of the day. You know, I just always was like, damn, that guy's, that guy's a savage. Do you, when was the last time you went to the snow? I went snowboarding last year for the first time in a decade. So I became a bike messenger and I stopped snowboarding because A, you don't make a lot of money as a bike messenger and True. B, you can't go do things that hurt yourself on the weekends and then expect to be a functional bike messenger because your dispatcher doesn't give a fuck that you case that 
360 on the big hit and, you know, can't bend your left knee. So I totally stopped snowboarding. And then last year I went up to, I have a friend that has a cabin up in Dunsmuir, California. And I went and uh, went snowboarding twice up at Mount Shasta at the ski, oh, ski park up there, which is super tiny. And I still had it. I was pumped. I like, got on the board. I was able to like shred just like I was normally used to until I went to the terrain park. And then I broke myself the fuck off. <laughs> I used to hit the park and like hit all the jumps and the rails and I went back and tried it and I don't, I don't have it anymore, man. <laughs> I'm so fucked up. Dude, well, the, all that shit's fucking huge, too. And it's made out of ice, which I think is worse than cement. <laughs> also, I'm not 24, you know? Like, yeah. I think that's the thing is, I used to be able to take all those hits, but, like, oh, man, I was, I was I sore for, like, a week after that. It was great. Like, I went I went two, time, two days in a row, and up for a weekend, I went two days in a row, and I, I couldn't walk right for, like, five days. I kind of can't wait for this next season so I can go again. It was good. Probably just not going to hit the park as much. Yeah, I mean, it was like flow rider stage in life, right? Maybe. I mean, yeah, like, smoking jammers, riding the trees. <laughs> yeah, that sounds awesome. Totally. Well, and then that parallel of like that type of snowboarding to flying through traffic specifically is like so similar. It's like, yeah. the, the, you know, there's no brakes on either one of them. You're flowing over obstacles. You're just like, just going with it. It's uh. I don't know, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, it's totally, it's the same thing in my mind. Like, I was, it was one of those things where as I was doing that, like, taking these tree runs, I was like, this is a lot like riding a track bike through traffic. It Mainly in the sense, like you said, you're flowing, but you kind of have to plan ahead. You know, if you're ripping through traffic, that's the thing is you're always looking, you know, like six cars ahead of you to see what's ahead so you can kind of plan because you're not going to be able to stop. And it's the same on a snowboard. Like, you can slam on the brakes on a snowboard as fast as you want. You're not stopping on a dime. So you better be planning ahead and, like, have a bailout somewhere. You did. You you never noticed that when you started like riding track bikes in the city, you, you weren't like, oh, this reminds me of this other thing. Not at all. It was weird. I I don't I don't really I don't think of myself as the type of person that like will drop something and to pick up something new. I'm pretty good at like sticking with the things that I do. But when I got into bikes, that was the thing. Is I like I fully got into bikes. I like totally like was like snowboarding. Like what is that? You're dead. You know. Like all I care about is track bikes. And I, I mean, it was something that I was like so track bike centric for so long that I mean, yeah, it was weird. I never made that parallel. I think it was some weird like block in my brain where I was like, oh, I just ride track bikes now. Like, uh, so it's cool to be able to make that connection now a little later on. Like, yeah. And, well, I think the that thing that you described, like the obsessiveness about track bikes is super common for people, especially when they're younger, like maybe in their 20s. It's this, and then if there's a messenger culture involved, you just get absorbed in this whole culture. And then also cycling in the city, you kind of get this like fuck cars mentality. So then snowboarding, you need a car. So it's like, uh, and cycling's also, it, it kind of sounds like for you, which is similar for me with skate is it, it's just satiating in the same way. It just fills that need. And you're like, I, why would I need anything else? This has all of it from culture yeah. to physical output to, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Which is, I mean, I think it's super important, especially I think a lot of the reason that I got as, as far as I have in cycling is because I like focused on it so much. And I like, you know, live, breathe, eat shit cycling for like a decade, but it is really nice to be able to step away and be like, all right, there's other things like snowboarding. Like I started running, which really sucks, but like, it's cool and I enjoy it. And, it, it sucks because it hurts my body a lot, not because running actually sucks. But, you know, it's nice to be able to take a step away from just purely cycling and, like, do other things. Like, 
<laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, balance is key. I, but you bring up a good point about like, I think for, for anyone, and it's always cool for me to hear this is like, if you choose to focus on one thing, that thing's going to grow. And it's almost, you could equate it down to just time. If you choose, you know, we have this set amount of time each day, and then however much of it you decide to put towards any specific thing, those things will progress. So like Malcolm Gladwell's thing, 10,000 hours, you know? Yeah. I'm a firm believer in that. And honestly, people are like, wow, you got so lucky with like everything and everything, all the sponsors. And it's like, dude, 10,000 hours. I mean, there was certainly a fair amount of luck involved, but like, I just spent so much time doing it. I lived it, you know, like every day, 365 days a year for like nine years, it was just like track bikes, messengers, like that's it. That's my whole life. And like, you know, a little bit of art and like, you know, relationships and everything. But that was like the big main focus. And I, I think that the 10,000 hours thing, it's like talent goes, talent helps. But really, if you just spend a ridiculous amount of time in something, you're going to get good at it eventually. Oh, for sure. For sure. And on that 10,000 hours thing, too, is I think that people kind of have this mentality that 10,000 hours. Oh, my God, I have to dedicate my whole life to get good at this one thing. But if you break that math down, we have multiple opportunities for 10,000 hours. So you could do five different yeah. things at the same time and they'll all take a lot longer, but they'll all mature and you could have, you could become a master at five things. So it's not, you don't need to only do one. It's just, it's whichever thing one wants to accomplish first, but then ideally the thing that they're like kind of drawn to that helps a lot instead of this just force through it kind of a thing. Yeah. And I think that that's, I mean, I feel like that's something I wish I had learned a lot earlier in life was rather than focus on one thing and try to do like 10,000 hours at once and get it done quickly. I think I would have rather have focused on like five things and maybe it would have taken longer, but as you, as you grow doing multiple things and you're like pursuing all of these passions, they kind of help each other. And I, I mean, specifically for my cycling, I feel like I, I'm like having a lot of physical cycling issues in the last couple of years because I focus so much on just cycling, riding track bike specifically really? that I didn't do anything, any other types of like fitness or training or anything else. And it is now like kind of detrimental to me where I wish I could have like earlier in life, maybe branched out and spent some other time working on other types of like physical fitness. And that's like kind of specific, but I think it really speaks to what you said, where it's like, maybe spread it out a little bit, like 10,000 hours doesn't have to be 10,000 hours at one thing. Yeah. It, well, also, you still have plenty of time to become a master at several different things, just based off, you know, as long as we don't die tomorrow, anything's possible. <laughs> um, but yeah, like what you're saying about being injured or like um, not injury, but like your body wearing out, that's the plight of the professional athlete. It's like in yeah. like and then that makes me kind of curious, like what kind of things would you do you wish that you would have balanced it with? Um, I mean, it is, that's actually something that I've been dealing with a ton and it's like, a, it's a very real thing that you never think it's going to happen to you until all of a sudden it does. And your body's like this thing that basically you've been getting for free your entire life. Like my body's ability to perform no matter how hungover I was or how poorly I treated it. Now in the last couple of years, my body's like, you know, you got to pay for that. Um, I do. I wish I had done more like off the bike stuff. Really? I mean like hiking and like running and it's something where like I went on a hike me and me and my partner Jenny we hiked uh Telescope Peak in Death Valley uh late last year like right before this right right before it got snowed in it's like a 14 mile round trip hike 
Whoa. And it's, it's a lot of climbing. It's a long hike, but like I got done with that and I was fucking wrecked. <laughs> like I could barely walk for like two days afterwards. And I had like nice hiking boots on and stuff. And it kind of bothered me that I wasn't able as like a human being to go hike 14 miles. Like I consider myself very fit, but like I couldn't hike 14 miles. Like that's not really that far, you know? And then like running, it's like, I, I can run, I run like five miles now and I run and it hurts a lot. <laughs> and it's like, as a human being, I feel like I should be able to run more than five miles at a time. So like all of my <laughs> physical prowess and like everything is like centered on this bike. And it's like, I can ride 200 miles in a day, like X amount of Watts for X amount of time, whatever. But I think it would have been really cool to do like a lot of different other physical activities so that I was, I kind of had built that capacity the entire time that I was getting fit as like my twenties and thirties, I built the same capacity I built on the bike in other types of things like running, walking, swimming, hiking, like kind of what happened. Do you do anything now as like a supplemental train? I don't know, not training, but like, I don't know how to say that. Like, are there other exercises that you do? I do. I actually do a ton. It's, it's actually pretty wild. I feel like I've undergone this like kind of wild physical transformation in the last couple of years. Um, it really started when I, I had to scratch from the bike nonstop last year. It was a gravel race across America. Um, it was the first time I've ever had to scratch from an ultra endurance race. It's the first time I ever had to like stop racing because my body wasn't able to handle it. I got patella tendonitis so bad in my left knee that I like could barely walk. Um, I got it, made it about halfway, made it to Wyoming. So I made it maybe a little less than halfway around across the country. How far, um, how I, far and how long was that? What does halfway mean? The race was like a 3000 mile race and I made it like about 1300 miles. So yeah. Wow. And I was doing good. I was, I was actually in fifth place and I made a move to get into third place. And when you make a move in an ultra endurance race, it's like a day and a half, you know, it's not like racing a crit where like you make your move and you see if it worked right away. When you make a move in a race like that, you, I specifically like went to bed early one night, woke up at like three o'clock in the morning and rode three mountain passes in one day to get, to get in front of the two people that were in front of me. And I did it. I got in front of them, but I like burnt myself out the next day. I didn't recover. Right. And then two days later, my knee blew up. So my move worked. And then eventually I, I had to scratch, but that was when I was like, okay, something's like wrong. Like I've never had to quit before, you know, or, you know, I don't want to say quit, but I've never had to like pull out of a race. And so uh, I went and saw like a specialist, like a, like a knee specialist. And uh, my partner um, is a certified like physical therapist, massage, massage therapist. She teaches fitness classes. So she really helped me. And over the course of that year till now, and actually, especially during this quarantine, um, I do a ton of stretching, strength training, mobility exercises. Like I'm not like lifting. I, I didn't think of it as lifting. Uh, you know, cause I'm not in the gym, like pumping iron, lifting all these weights, I've got like 10 pound weights and I'll do, you know, like a series of workouts with 10 pound weights and then do some stuff with resistance bands and then do like 45 minutes of core exercises just on the ground with a yoga mat. And like, dude, oh, it cool. wrecks me. It like, I have like, I feel like I've, I've put on a bunch of weight, which is like muscle weight, which is weird. Cause I've always been like a really scrawny dude with big legs. And now all of a sudden, like I have all this extra muscle, but I also have to eat like way more and I'm sore all the time, but I feel really strong. It's, it's kind of weird. Like I'm, I don't, don't think I'm done with the, whatever transformation I'm going through right now, but I definitely do a lot of extra work now. Um, thankfully the quarantine is around. It's one of the good things for me is that normally with my travel schedule in life, I was never, it was really hard to structure that. But since I'm home all the time, I can spend like an hour or two every day, like kind of working out, which I was always against, but I feel really good as of late. So I think it's working. 
Do you do you ever take a rest day, or is it every single day? Oh yeah, no, dude. I resting is so important. My God, that's for everyone that's listening. Recovery and rest is like the most important thing. Way more important than any training you will do. Stretching, rest, and recovery. And I st- I know this right, and I like burn myself out all the time. But even at the beginning of this whole shelter in place, I went and I like rode was riding every day and when I wasn't riding, I was running and then doing like an hour to an hour and a half of strength training. And after three weeks, I like just hit this wall. Like I was out on a ride with my quarantine riding buddy, ambitious ride, we were gonna go ride uh, Mount Diablo, which is a peak in the East Bay in Oakland and then go ride Mount Tam, which is a piece in. And we got to the bridge to go ride Mount Tam after riding the first peak and I just like sat down and I was like, dude, I can't. Like I can't even see straight. I've been eating so much food. Like it took me like two hours to get the 10 mile flat ride home. He went and finished the ride. And I was just like, I got home and like curled up in a ball in my kit, like on the bed and didn't even get to take a shower for like an hour. I was laying in the bed, like, Oh God, I'm dying. And I just, I like, I needed a rest. I took five days off the bike. I didn't exercise for five days didn't do anything except eat snacks and smoke jammers on the couch. And I felt great. So since then I've been putting in specific rest days, I haven't been like strength training and running in the same day or strength training and riding on the same day. I like vary it. And I, it's one of those weird things is catch 22 where you're like, I, I especially feel this need to be constantly exercising, constantly performing. And especially with Instagram, you see all these other people doing these rides and everyone's like staying fit during quarantine and doing all this. But it was really important to stop and just be like, okay, that's them, whatever. This is me. And I need, to rest. I need these recovery days. And I feel like I'm way stronger now. And we lately we've been building up. I did like a 200 mile ride a couple weeks ago, but that's because I did like a 120 one week, a 140 the next, a 160, 180. But then I rested two days after every ride and I made sure to get like a ton of recovery in. And then I did a 200 mile ride and I got done with it. And I was like, eh, I mean, I'm tired, but like, I'm doing all right. Wasn't, wasn't that clapped out. But I don't think it was because I trained a lot. I think it's because I rested, which is crazy to me, but it works. So Yeah, it sounds then for you, it's like you have an issue with not resting enough. Like you'll kind of overwork it. Oh, dude, I'll work myself to the bone. And like that's the double-edged sword of like social media is that, you know, people don't post their rest days. Maybe we should. Maybe we should make that a hashtag, you know, like couch selfies on your rest day. But people don't post that. People post their rides and their epic adventures. And I'm totally guilty of that too. Like I post all and I share all about my epic rides and epic adventures and like all this stuff that I'm doing. And it's really easy to get caught into it and feel like you should be doing that every day. But in reality, you know, like you're maybe seeing that, that one person's one crazy ride of the week. Yes. They're resting the other five or six days. But since, you know, you're seeing all this, all these different people in your feet all the time, it's really easy to get in this mindset where you're like, I have to, I have to go ride every day. I have to try really hard and like beat all these people. And I think it's important to just really listen to your body and like take some time off and chill for your mind too, you know, mentally. (laughs) That makes me think about like competition for you. Like is, is that like, how, what's your relationship to competition? I mean, I've, I've never been a really competitive person. I'd like to say until like it comes down to like actually racing. And then, you know, like I get, I get competitive during the race. I think for me, it's actually kind of a mixed bag. At, At first I, I raced, you know, alley cats and stuff like that. Um, the preface is by saying that like I played hi- soccer in high school oh. and I never made it varsity. I was JV from my freshman freshman year to my senior year, kind of because I didn't really care enough to like 
play varsity and didn't have that like school spirit and that super competitive, like we got to win drive. I like JV because it was like, oh, we like get stoned and then we go kick the ball around and like, my friends are there and I'm outside and having a good time, but like not a lot of pressure. So when I started racing, I kind of always took that with me. And then when I started racing alley cats, it was like, okay, I want to be known as the fast guy. So my motivation was to be like the, one of the faster bike messengers. And that was like a thing, a big thing in the bike messenger community is like how fast you know, it's like, that's a, that's a, a big, good metric of like you as a messenger. And then I started getting sponsors and I was like, okay, I got to start like doing well because I want to get sponsors and I want to get flown places. And like, I saw this very direct correlation between like winning and doing well and being competitive and like getting sponsors and getting flown places and getting opportunities and like all this stuff. But then I really kind of burnt myself out about that. Like it happened kind of right when Red Hook was just starting to get big and I was out like training and doing intervals and taking it like super serious. Mm. Uh, and then starting to get beat by these kids who are like 18, 19. And I had this moment where I was like, damn, I remember being that like 19 year old, 20 year old kid, 21 beating like all of these older guys. And these older guys are like, God damn kids. Like, like <laughs> And I realized that it was me. I was like 26, 27 getting beat by like 20 year olds. And I had this epiphany that was like, there will always be someone younger and faster than you. And this is not an epiphany that I am, you know, I came to it, but this is a very common knowledge in bike racing in any sport really, but there will always be someone younger and faster than you, no matter what. So I kind of had this moment where I was like, it's cool to be competitive. The drive is nice, but I started to really start to train and compete, not to win, but for the feeling like, and I know everyone's experienced it. And for me, the feeling is when everything else falls away. You're racing a crit, you're racing an alley cat, you're road racing, mountain bike racing, ultra endurance racing. When all of your focus is centered on what you're doing at that exact moment and it's that like pure speed, you're so on that razor edge of focus. And I love that feeling. It's like a drug, like I can't get enough of it. And I started to realize that like, that's really what motivated me to race. And so I started racing more for that. So I think I was really competitive to kind of make a name for myself, to kind of get sponsors and maintain sponsors. And then I kind of fell off of it. And to be honest, it, it is a, it has definitely impacted my racing. Like I used to win a lot of races and now I'm lucky to get like one or two wins a year. <laughs> but I'm also okay with that because I'm not really racing to win and to beat other people. I'm racing to get that feeling for myself because it is like the fucking coolest feeling. Everyone knows what I'm talking about. When you're on a bike, running, doing something, whenever you're fully focused and like engaged in whatever activity you're doing and you're 110% there, that feeling is so rad. So I think that's, that's now more what motivates me than being competitive. Do you feel like you ever get that feeling when you're just like riding or training? Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. And I, I mean, yeah, that's what keeps me going out to train. I mean, I'm not, I like being fit and being fast, but like no amount of training I do at age 35 is going to make me a, a realistically competitive bike racer in any of the races that I'm doing, like any of the big gravel races, like Ted King, you know, Colin Strickland, you know, those guys are showing up. It's like, I'm not going to realistically compete against them. <laughs> you know, any of the fixed gear crits, it's like, I can have a great time, but like, you know, you got, you got dudes flying in from Europe, like professional racers. Uh, uh, so it's, I mean, yeah, I, that's, I, I searched for that feeling. I mean, that's kind of what the whole search for Stoke thing is like, that's what that means to me. That's, that's kind of how I define that, that feeling and that, that vibe is just like, I search for that. And I, you know, you get a lot during racing. Racing is a really good way to find this dope because you're in a specific 
context in which you're being provided with the course and the motivation to do that. But in reality, the search for Stoke happens every day. Like whenever I go ride my bike, you know, it's, I'm, I'm looking for that. You know, it sounds like flow. So it happens in all these different disciplines, making art, making music, riding bikes, conversations like it can kind of happen any and everywhere. I actually also think just meditating is a way to kind of like touch on that in a different way and drugs also. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's, it's great. And I mean, riding a bike for me is like meditation. And I, I didn't really realize that until I, uh, I got a vasectomy a couple, like two years ago now. And I was off the bike for, I, I couldn't ride a bike. My balls were all fucked up. I couldn't ride a bike for like five weeks. And I realized I started to go a little crazy because I, and I didn't really think about it as being a way of meditation for me until I, it was gone. And then I was like, oh, whoa, like that's wild. And I mean, for some people, the drugs aspect of it can be like here or there. But I mean, for me, like I love smoking a jammer and riding a bike. I feel like they go so well together. And like, yeah. I, I started microdosing and riding a bike, like microdosing LSD. And for those of you who aren't familiar, that's when you take like, a very small dose. If you take like a dose of, of LSD, you take like maybe a fifth or a quarter. Um, kind of figure out whatever works for you. So you're not obviously like tripping, but you're you're a little bit you're a little bit out there. Um, and I feel like for me that works really well with riding bikes because obviously you need to be aware of what's going on and like you know fully cognizant you're riding a bike. There's your danger to yourself, danger to others. But with just a little bit of, of LSD, like. I feel like I can go on like a seven hour ride and just really like get in my own head and like find some really cool places and find that flow, which is not, it's not like it's a necessity, but it's something that I found that really like kind of helps you get out there. <laughs> no, I, I feel the same. I mean, I feel like we both kind of interact with cannabis specifically in a similar way where it's, it's both in our lives a lot. It's for sure pairs with cycling, like none other. Um, but for you, I guess I'm a little like, I'm not a professional, so I really love the fact that you smoke weed. And, and when you say jammers, do you mean like a spliff or does that mean just straight cannabis? So I've never smoked cigarettes. I've never been the one to go buy a pack of smokes or anything. I, you know, I'll have a smoke if I'm, if I'm drinking and it's great. But uh, we started when I moved to San Francisco, people were smoking jammers, which is a spliff. Uh, and you did it back then because we were broke and you wanted to make your weed last a really long time. So you, you know, cut half weed, half tobacco and it made your bag of weed last twice as long. Um, but I mean, I, and I say this people that know me, I'll say all the time, I, I fucking love smoking cigarettes. Like I love smoking tobacco, but I know as an athlete and as like a person, it's not, it's not good for you in any way. So I don't, but smoking a split is like my like guilty pleasure. So I usually like, if I'm going to smoke weed most of the time, I'll smoke a spliff and it'll be like 60% weed, 40% tobacco. Uh, the ratios may vary, but huh. yeah, I feel like for me, it's a, it's a good thing. And like me and my, my really good travel buddy, Nico, we do all the ultra endurance races and stuff together. And he, you she used to smoke cigarettes and quit, but we, we smoke when we travel. That's like our thing. It's like our guilty pleasure. And it, it seems ridiculous to go race these like ultra endurance races across Europe and whatever, smoke cigarettes, but that's definitely something that we do. You know, like rain, rain cigarettes is the best. If it's pouring down rain and you're racing, you know, do these crazy races, like if it starts really pouring down rain, just stop anywhere that's dry and have a smoke and then get back on the bike and ride off into the, into the rain. But I mean, as an athlete, it it's uh, it's definitely a detriment. I'm not going to lie. Oh, and I mean, everyone that smokes and rides bikes, it, it makes it harder to breathe. It, yeah. it doesn't, it doesn't, it maybe helps like mentally, like cannabis obviously is like a, a great thing for me mentally, but it's definitely not a performance enhancement. <laughs> and I think smoking split specifically is a performance decreaser, but 
that's one of those things where I don't take competition that seriously that I want to give up the things in my life that I enjoy. So for me, it's a trade-off. Like I'm okay being a couple watts slower or a couple seconds slower on a climb or breathing heavier or whatever. My heart rate goes up so that I can smoke a jammer and have a beer and I'm okay with that. And some people aren't, and I totally get it. If you're racing on like a super competitive level and you are like marginal gains and like you're really trying to make it happen, like you should not smoke jammers. But I'm not trying to make any marginal gains. (laughs) (laughs) And then you, you drink then also. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, I think a lot of that coming from the messenger community. It's funny. Like a lot of people enter bike racing from a very different way that I entered bike racing. You know, as far as like kids and, it's a sport and it's like something that you do that you train for and you center a lot of your life, your diet, your drinking choices, things like that. Whereas like I started racing bikes where like you drank before the race, like alley cats. Yeah. It was like, yeah, you a couple beers at the bar to loosen up, have a shot, go race the race, come back, party all night. And I remember like I raced my first couple of alley cats, like a couple beers deep. And I was like, this is the most fun ever. Like, let's be real. Racing alley cats drunk is a great time. It's a horrible idea. Do not do that. I would crash into so many cars and I would get done with these races and just be like covered in blood. My handlebars would be all off and I'd be like, this is so great. Woo! And I was like, okay, I may be like 21 years old right now, but I know that this is such a bad idea. Like I cannot do this. So I don't drink when I race alley cats anymore, but I mean, that was a big part of messenger culture. It's like, yeah. you, you drink, you go to any of the big messenger championships. It's like you party until four o'clock in the morning and you're out there racing bikes at 10 AM the next day. And like the, the whole thing is like, who can race the best with a hangover? You know, and it's one of those really strange things about the messenger community, but like if you raced in like a NAC, like a North American Cycle Courier Championship or a CMWC, like the World Messenger Worlds, these like very big sanctioned events that happen, hundreds of people show up and you don't drink and you're not hungover, people talk shit to you and they'll be like, what the fuck? Do you like, what do you you need to leg up? Like, what do you not, you didn't go party last night? Like nerd, you know, and if you're straight edge and that's like a life choice, people respect that. But if people know that you drink and you like didn't drink to save it for the race, you'll straight get ridiculed, which if you go to like a professional bike race, that's the exact opposite. You know, if you show up, start with cat total line and some cat one road race and you smoke reek like booze, which I've done before, people look at you like, what the fuck is wrong with you? You're obviously hungover. Like, what are you doing here? Get the hell out of here. Go home. And so it's just weird because like I was brought up in my racing career being like, yeah, you drink and you race. That's like peas and carrots, you know, peanut butter and jelly, whatever. (laughs) And that's totally not how most people do bike racing and like physical fitness. So yeah, I don't know. That's just kind of where I came from and I'm not willing to give it up because I love, I love a cold beer. <laughs> yeah, no, I get, I, from, from the same culture, I completely understand it. I, I, <laughs> I'm <talking> about. <laughs> I actually respect it because now that, you know, you've kind of hung on, not hung on to it and it's just a part of you and it's like so real. And I just, cause I'm from the same culture. It's like, I have so much respect for it instead of going straight athlete and fucking protein shake and like my you know it's like it's about living life it's not about like marginal gains is a good way it is true the the only thing that i really find depressing about that whole concept is in my 20s my best races i feel like happened when i was hungover like i was able to go and drink until like three or four in the morning and like show up to a race and just feel like utter trash you know like literally like vomiting at the start line no breakfast (laughs) And then go win the race. I, and I, I, would, I loved it. I love being able to do that, like towing the line with a bunch of dudes who obviously take it like really fucking serious. And you're the only dude that reeks like booze. You're wearing like cut off shorts and a t-shirt. Everyone else is in a kit. And you like peek at the start line and then they're like, go. And you just go like dominate on everybody. 
that doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> <laughs> having this long conversation with my buddy Kel about it, and he was saying the same thing. It's like, man, that was the thing. It's like you see all these young bike racers who don't drink now because they want to take it serious, and you almost want to be like, look, that was the time that you can drink and still be fast. Wait till you hit your mid-30s, and it's a lot harder to race your bike hungover. I'm saying it's impossible, but I can tell you that if I'm hungover, I'm probably not going to have a great day on the bike like I would at 20. Say, Coach Chaz here in the corner, like, look, you go ahead, you take that fucking beer bong, you're good to go. You take five more Carb years. Carb loading before the race. Yeah, that is hilarious. Um, one of the things that I've always kind of admired about you and your path is your like ability to gain sponsorship in this weird space that we exist in where, you know, it's kind of like skateboarding, but nobody's really sponsored. It's not quite pro cycling. It's this weird, like no man's land where essentially nobody's sponsored. There's like maybe a handful of people in this, like, I call it like, you know, like the lifestyle cycling, the cycling subculture that actually do have support. And it's, I, I'm just curious of how, like, how did you know to pursue that? Or what was the draw to start doing it? Like, it's just interesting. I mean Here's the thing, and I think this may piss some people off, but it, the reason it happened is because I didn't want it to happen. I like I was riding with Mash, and that was cool, and that was like really rad because like I love Mike and the crew. And it, it wasn't even like a sponsorship; it was more just like, dude, all me and all my friends, we got this cool thing in San Francisco. We race bikes. Sometimes we fly around the world, and uh, my whole goal from the very beginning was to see the world in any way possible. You know, and I originally I was going to go drive a big container ship and work on the on the ocean, right. and then I realized that like people will buy me plane tickets to, to ride my bike places. And I was like, that's tight. So the travel was always the baseline, but none of the sponsorship was. And I actually had a really hard time. I said no to a ton of sponsors and I just wasn't into it. Cause I was like, that's fucking selling out. Like I'm a bike messenger taking sponsorship is selling out. Like, I don't want to do that. Like I equate it to being an amateur skateboarder, you know, where it's like, if you're an amateur skateboarder, you get, your flight's paid for. Maybe they kick you back in a hotel. You get decks. You get trucks, shoes. But you don't get a paycheck. You get the experience without the paycheck. And I was always like, that's totally fine. That's my jam. I can be an amateur skateboarder. In the bike world, you know, I ran TCB. So I was like, I've got this other thing. I've got like a real job. And uh, so I don't need these sponsorships. And I just said no to a lot of them. And I was always like, nah, I don't want to do that. Ah, that's lame. Like, no, thank you. No, thank you. And they, for some reason... Like, I just, I got these sponsors, even though I was like, nah, I don't really want to. Like, Oakley is a prime example is, you know, I, I'm blind. I I, need, I wear glasses. These are like 100% prescription glasses. And finally, they, they kept on being like, you want to do this? Photo shoots, yada, yada. And I was like, no, 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 no. couple paid photo shoots here and there. And I was like, I don't really know about this. And then they were like, well, we want to sign you as a prescription athlete. We want you to wear our prescription glasses. That's um, sick. I mean, like I was like, you know, the same pair of glasses for four years, duct tape, spray paint. Like you actually spray painted your glasses a long time ago. And I was like, spray paint my glasses like Dustin. I remember you know, the green call. ones. Yeah, the green ones. Exactly. And I was like, you know, I had those glasses for like four years. And then someone was like, look, we'll give you like new glasses. And really wearing like race glasses, like the Oakley, oh. like radars and all that with the, the curved lenses, getting peripheral vision when you race bikes. I never raced bikes with peripheral vision until I got sponsored by Oakley. And I was like, oh, you can see corner of your eye but it was something that i like kind of begrudgingly got the sponsorship and like didn't the joke with my my good buddy steve blick who, who was uh, my athlete manager forever and oakley was like you he's like i was like pulling teeth you get you to do anything 
where all these other athletes are like chomping at the bit to get exposure and like the next big thing and plug me and plug me. And I was always like, dude, I just want the classes. Like me alone, bro. We go like race some alley cat. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, it's weird. I definitely will say in the last couple of years, like I, I started to seek out sponsors because of things that I like, like working with Rider GPS. Like I'm on contract with Rider GPS. Cool. I use Rider GPS for years. I paid for it before I started working with them. And it was like, wait, I would love to work with you as a company because I really fucking love your product. And I want other people to be able to use it the same way I do. And I think it's a really great thing, but definitely the formative years of like being sponsored, I just kind of didn't want it. And then it, I don't know. It sounds, I think people will get bummed because like a lot of people really try hard to get sponsors. Like what's your secret? And it's like, I don't know, man, don't want it. And like fight, fight back against it. And they, I don't know. And they'll just show up. I'm really not sure how to describe it. Well, I mean, winning races and being aligned with certain things helps all of that. So, yeah. you know, the hard to get type of thing is can can make it well, easier, yeah. too. So having a conversation with my buddy Kel again, we were, this was kind of in the same conversation where he he's kind of he's Kel did it on rollerblades. Kel's a way gnarlier dude than I will ever be on a bike and in general in life. He's one of the dudes that hasn't ever really been sponsored a ton. Like he's got support, but. You know, but a lot of people come to him and me and they're like, how do I get sponsored? Da, 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 da. And we were talking about like the young racers who are in their 20s and are super concerned about results. And it's like, you know what, man? Nobody really cares about winning. Like you care about winning and the people you're racing against. But like sponsors don't care about that, really. Like if you if you have a raging weekend and you party hard and you like do a bunch of crazy stuff and then like, yeah, there's a bike race involved in that one great or whatever. But if you have like a crazy adventure and really just enjoy yourself – I feel like now, now I know that that resonates a lot more with sponsors and with people. And, and that's what people really want is like the story. Like, you know, you win a race, people are like, wait, you want to race. But if you like have some crazy adventure and some scar to tell and there's a tattoo and then like there's, you know, some shaved heads and like weird things happen. That's the kind of stuff that people talk about for like months and years later, as opposed to like who won that race. No one remembers who won the race a week later. And I think I, I realize that now, but at the time I was just like, I'm just trying to have a good time and see the world and party and have an adventure. And I think that really ended up resonating with a lot of sponsors because it was just like, yeah, this this dude doesn't really give a fuck about you know being sponsored. He just wants to have a good time. And I was, and then now like growing up a little bit more and seeing like kind of how that balance works, I now see it. But I think it was more about just like, well, what did Kel say? He's like, Nobody cares who won the race. You need to leave a legacy of like crushed beer cans and like scabs behind them. It was, he said it much more eloquently, but you know, you get the vibe. It's like, you can win a race and that's cool. But like, really you'd be the dude that backflipped off the, off the end of the hotel pool at 4am. That's who people are going to talk about. Don't backflip in the hotel pool. Um, I, I think it's cool. I think like, you know, it's sort of like a professional thing to like, or growing up to be able to start seeking out sponsorships too, you know, like why not go for people that are, or for companies that you want to be aligned with, you know, they might not even know that you exist, but once they do, they might be super stoked on it, you know? And that's the thing. And like, like Dynaplug is another example where like, I love Dynaplug. I, I, they're, they're excellent. It's what really got me into riding tubeless tires. And they don't even really know I existed. I mean, I was just buying all this stuff. And finally, one day I was like, hey, can we like do something cool together? And they were like, yeah, yeah, this is great. You know, um, I don't know, even really sponsored by Dynaplug, you know, like they just sent me some some pills and I like some of the Dynaplug pills now and then. But it's just like, yeah, like, I want to work with them because they're a rad company. And I now know that I'm able to, I know enough to approach them in a way that's like business like because I basically want to get other people to use Dynaplugs because I want people to ride tubeless tires because 
it's better. You don't get as many flats. You can shred longer. And it's like, if you ride a bike, you should be riding tubeless tires. If you ride tubeless tires, you should use Dynaplug. And my motivation is like, not even like, oh, I want to get the sponsor, but it's more like, I want people to use this product because this product fucking rules, which is, yeah. And it's weird. It's not a Dynaplug plug, by the way. <laughs> plug, plug. Do you, do you ever feel like a, like pressure from having sponsorship and like the obligations that come with it? Yeah, it was actually, we were driving down to Santa Cruz this morning to pick up a bike rack for the, for the GTI. And I was talking with my partner about it, about how I, I feel like I've lost a little bit of the wanderlust for travel in the last couple of years because well, you've done a ton I, of it. Yeah, I, yeah. I've done a lot of travel, which is rad, but now when I travel, especially with Instagram and everything, and, and like, thankfully, once again, I absolutely fucking love all my sponsors. Um, but like, you know, I'll get like a new SRAM group and a zip wheel set and I'll go do this trip. And I, it's like a job, you know, this is like, I hate to say this cause I never thought I would say this, but like, I'm an influencer and that's what I do for a living right now among other things. And that's cool, but it's a job. And it, it's one of those things where you could be out having a really rad adventure and now I, I think about like, okay, I, I got to get this shot and this shot and I need to make sure that I plug this and this. Um, and it's cool. You know, that's, that's, that's what it is. It's the give and take. It's like, I get a brand new set of zip carbon wheels. I have to talk about them and I have to post them and get nice photos. And like, I need to like share them and it, it's, it's a job. So I think it is tough sometimes with the sponsorship. I, I think I, we're, we were specifically talking about the conversation, like, man, I want to go on some trips where like, I'm not obligated by any sort of sponsorship to promote a product or talk about a certain thing. I just want to be able to go on a trip and like, you know, whatever, have a, have an adventure without having to like think about like this photo that I need to take or whatever. Yeah. Is that, do you think that's specifically like, because it's for this thinking like, Oh, what would this brand want? Or would you do, what about the idea of going on a trip and is it the documentation or is it the obligation? For me, it's the obligation. I feel super obligated if somebody like, if somebody, if somebody gives me something, if there's like an exchange, I always want to make sure that I fully uphold my end of the bargain, you know? And so if somebody is giving me a product and I've agreed to like take that product and I enjoy the product and I really want to do like my best job to show that and like, you know, to document it and then share it with everyone. Cause it is, it's a transaction. I mean, I want to do the best I can. Um, you know, you don't, you don't want to half-ass anything. And so I think for me, a lot of it is like, I want to take some trips and I fully plan on it. Once, once again, one of the positive things about this COVID situation is all of the huge travel schedule and all of the trips and everything that I had planned is totally off the table now. So I've just got a bunch of rad bike tours in California with had a lot of obligations and stuff. But, uh, you know, take some trips that just don't have that. It's, yeah, it's something, something that I really enjoy having the sponsors, obviously, and being able to work with these brands and, like, help them develop amazing products and share the products and get other people stoked on it. But it's definitely a job, and sometimes it affects – kind of the vibe that I've had for so long with my relationship with bikes has turned it into business. Yeah. And then that's inevitable when anything, when any passion turns into like a, into a job, basically, like once there's that exchange for things, it's just, it just shifts it. You know, it's not necessarily better or worse. It's just different. So you're like, Oh, this is suddenly like, I see this over here now while before it, it was like here and you're like, Oh, so yeah. Like, just learning how to deal with that interaction, I guess, is like the relationship yeah, with it, it, I suppose. Like you said, it's not, it's, not, it's not better or worse. It is just different, you know? And it's something that I fought for a long time. And that was kind of the thing is like, I fought it. I didn't want any sponsors. I didn't want that relationship right. to change. I understood that like, if I got a bunch of sponsors and made this like my job, it would change my relationship. And since TCB shut down a couple of years back, 
that was kind of the shift is it was like, well, I don't really want to get a real job ever. So ever. <laughs> uh, this is an opportunity that's in front of me right now. Like I'm going to take this opportunity and I'm going to run with it. And I'm really going to like do the like bike, bike influencer thing and really kind of make it like a full-time job. So I started to take it more seriously and you know, it, it's a job, but it's a really cool job, but like any job, some days, you know, you, what do you, you got a case of the Mondays. Sometimes <laughs> you just don't want to go to work. <laughs> Um, well, and then how, I guess that kind of ties into like, what's your relationship or connection with like social media? Like how, how do you juggle all of that? You know, that's a love hate relationship. I never, I never had social media. I wasn't on MySpace or Facebook. I never did any of that. Uh, and I only got Instagram because this girl that I was seeing at the time years and years and years ago was on Instagram and she was like, you should get on Instagram. And I was like, Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, so I got on Instagram and like part of the nachos, nachos thing is I was like, nachos, because this isn't real. This is totally cool. Fake. This is not me. This is not Chaz. And then it just kind of took off. Like, I think it was a time and a place thing. 100%. Like I got on Instagram right when Instagram was just new and then mash and kind of this whole social media thing really blew up. Um, and I don't really know. I know that I'm really good at Instagram and I find that to be really weird because I don't know why. Um, it's just something that happens, but I also kind of hate it because I mean, Instagram is, is super toxic. Like, let's be real. You're presented with a curated view of everyone's best moments in life. It doesn't show any of the actual realities, the hard parts of life, the bad days, the like kind of the depression, the like shitty training days. Like you don't see any of the bad stuff. You just see the good. And I myself am totally guilty of that where you just, you know, you don't post the shitty things. You post the adventures and the highlights. So you're kind of presented with this highlight reel of, all of your friends and of humanity. And then, you know, the human brain is just like, well, why am I not happy all the time? Why am I not doing this amazing stuff all the time? And it's just not realistic. So it's a double-edged sword because I mean, obviously like Instagram is a big part of my job right now, but at the same time, it can be like a really negative thing. Uh, you know, it can make, make people feel really inadequate and you can make you feel like you're blowing it. Like I was saying with the training, like I felt so obligated to train and ride and stay active all the time because all my friends were, and it's like, yeah, you gotta, you gotta do you. You gotta take some time off and, you know, take some time for yourself. So I don't know. It's a double-edged sword. It's a super positive thing. You know, it inspires a lot of people super rad to keep track of people from around the world and connect with all your friends and communities around the globe. It's great for brands. It really is amazing to allow brands to showcase new products and new ideas and stuff. But it's like one of those things where like in small doses, in measured doses, and it's, it's a hard thing to do, especially when you're locked at home for two months. <laughs> uh, you know, I think that social media is just a tool. I see it as a tool. It's a different type of medium, like drawing, like video, like photography. And it incorporates a lot of the, it's a multidisciplinary medium. So it's, you know, I don't think it's inherently good or inherently bad. I think it's inherently innate and it's how we choose to interact with it. And I, you know, why not show things that are not positive or like being sad or depressed? Like the, the ability is there. The option is there. I feel like for me, I don't necessarily want to do that because it's super vulnerable. Like, yeah. and also I don't necessarily want to promote being depressed like that's not you want to promote like positivity yeah so it, it, it's like this funny balancing act of like yeah sure like that is like a real side of life to have this but also do you want to see somebody that's like oh today sucks i just feel like shit and you're like um i don't really 
want your shitty day. So, <laughs> yeah, like you look at Instagram and social media, you get stoked a lot and get inspired and stuff. And I think you're totally right. I really like the tool. I never thought about it like that. And I think that's a really good way of putting it is like, it's an inanimate object. It's an innate thing or an inanimate thing. And uh, you use it either way you want and it can be positive or negative and you know, you choose what you share. And I think that's a super solid way of looking at it. I think I'm actually going to try and keep that in mind because I get, I get really down on myself sometimes, you know, like I hate looking at it and you spend too much time on it and you're just like, ah, oh, I got to put my phone down. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a good way of contexting it. Yeah. It, and I, I completely feel the same way as you too. Like it, it feels gross after a while. It's like, oh, like the obligation or like too many messages or whatever, like to just, you know, the separation is healthy and such. But I think it's kind of this like meta view, this thousand foot view of like, oh, this is like just a, uh, um, a thing to like, how can I manipulate this or how can I make something different with it? Like it's a canvas. And the craziest thing about that canvas is it's completely interactive. Like you make a drawing and nobody does anything with it. But if you do something through this medium of social media, there's this automatic response, whether it's positive, negative, indifference like it's it's so there's like this whole other dimension to it because of the interaction that's so unique that is not common even if you make a movie you don't fucking know like what did people say yeah you gotta wait till you read the reviews but now it's like you get this immediate reaction it, it's like a validation like it's totally it's, oh, it's a cool thing for sure. and it's also nice to get the criticism because like the social media is very quick to tell you if it's not into something and you're like Ooh, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's a weird one too because it's like I'll get super knee jerk and all sensitive about like, Oh, I don't want your fucking, even if it's like a criticism that's like, could be helpful. I'll automatically yeah. be like, fuck you. Don't tell me what yeah. to do or whatever. It's really an interesting thing. It's tough. I mean, I have like, I have some rules that I, I really try to apply. It's like, you know, never get into an argument, never respond, never respond publicly to like any sort of a jab. You, you know, it's just tough. Cause like, it's so easy to get sucked into like, an internet argument essentially with somebody <laughs> like no one ever wins no one ever wins this you're never going to win an internet argument and if you do eventually win an internet argument who cares it's an internet argument. yeah that's <laughs> an like, awesome yeah. perspective so what it's are you tough. gonna yeah. tough. someone criticizes something and you're just like oh my god like i want to tell you off so bad but it's like uh, you know whatever let people right. it's, a, it's a good exercise I me mean, like let people say and think what they want to think and you say and think what you want to think and that's okay if you disagree, just let everyone be, you know? Totally. There's this guy, Gary V, that has a really interesting perspective on negative comments or like hateful comments is essentially yeah. the, the way to perceive them is that that person is, is just hurting. Like they don't feel good inside. Their life is tough. Like they're not happy. So they're throwing out that discomfort to try and get a little relief. So it's, it's, it goes into this other thing of, and this might be one of the four agreements is take nothing personal. It's, it's never about you. It's never about me. It's, it's about that person, but yeah. fuck, that is so hard to comprehend. It like is. to Dude, know before, in before here. That's a big thing. You should talk about the four agreements, man. Those are so good. People, people should know about that. What are the, do you remember? Uh, take nothing personal. You gotta do, do your best. Um, fuck, what were the other two? Assume nothing or something like that? Yeah, assume not, yeah, that's definitely one of us. No assumptions, do your best, take nothing personal. And I forget the fourth one. Fuck, look up the four agreements, everyone out there. It is, 
it is really solid. It's not even like a philosophy or anything. It's just a couple four things that if like you're mindful about can really help in your in your life help keep everything on, on a nice level. You know, it's really like for the knee jerk reactions when you're like, oh God, I'm so mad at you right now. It's just like think about the four agreements and take a step back and then you'll probably feel a lot better. <laughs> I mean, that's the real exercise. Like that's the hardest shit. Like anger. I get angry really fast to the point that I barely understand that that's a choice. It just happens so knee jerk. And you're like, wait a minute, how do you choose? How am I, I'm not choosing anything, it's just happening. Uh, like uh, traffic, someone cuts you off, fuck you. It's like, you don't know that that's a choice. What's that? I, I, get, I, I think about that all the time too, because I get so bummed in traffic. But then I think about like, what did I do for a living forever? I raced a bike through traffic. I like got, I ran red lights for a living, you know, essentially for a long time. So it's like, yeah, I always just try and put it in context. Cause this thing is like, every time I get angry, every time I get frustrated, if you take a step back and think about it in like the bigger picture, it's really, it helps me a lot at least to be like, like in traffic, I'm like, oh, that guy just cut me off, fuck that guy. And I'd be like, I was riding my bike yesterday and I cut off like five cars. So like, you know, maybe I should let this one slide. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then also just the, you know, thinking about from someone else's perspective, we're so good at being fused into our everything. My world don't, you know, I wave at someone, they don't wave at me. Fuck you. I'm the specialist thing ever. It's like, wait a minute, like everyone has that perception. So everyone that's like the person that's throwing hateful comments is like, maybe they just got fired and their wife has cancer and life fucking sucks. Like you're probably not going to be so nice in traffic or in line or whatever. Like it's not about us. It's everyone dealing with their own thing. And I think that's, in my mind, with everything that's going on in the world, I think that that is the one thing that everyone could benefit from is taking yourself out of your own personal context and looking at it from like a different angle and trying to take yourself out of the like, this is all about me because it's so easy. We do. We get, you get stuck in this little box where you're like, this is me. I'm the center of the universe. I'm special. And you are, you are very special. Everyone's very special. But like taking, putting yourself in someone else's shoes and trying to remember that especially in the, the traffic is a great example. When someone is really shitty to you, it's probably not because they're actually a shitty person and it's definitely not because they're mad at you unless you actually did something fucked up. It's probably because they're having like a really hard time in life, you know? And that's just how they're, they're dealing with it. And I mean, I've been there, you've been there, you know, you have a shitty day and you snap at somebody and you cut somebody off or like, especially as a bike messenger, man, like, <laughs> I took off so many mirrors just because I was having a bad day. Not because anybody did anything you know, you straight out of your lane, you know, two feet out of your lane. And I was just on you like freaking out. And that's actually kind of where I learned a lot of this is I realized I was having these horrible days as a bike messenger. I was hating my job. And it was just because I was allowing myself to like take my frustrations out on the public and like pedestrians and cars. And then, you know, if you get in a fight with a pedestrian or someone in a car when you're on a bike, it never, it never ends well. Like even if you won the fight, like what did you actually get into a fist fight with somebody on the street and beat them up? Like, yeah, you, you won. Congratulations. What did you win? You yell at someone, you know, like you're not going to ever leave those situations feeling positive. So I started to think like out of every situation that I was in or like whatever interaction I had, it was like, what do I want to get out of this? that's positive. What can I get out of this positive? And if it's not something that I get out of this positive, then maybe I shouldn't have this interaction. Like maybe I should just walk away. Which is hard to just, you know, someone cuts you off, someone says something shitty to you, cuts you in line, whatever. It's hard to just be like, 
I'm gonna, I'm gonna get out of here, you know? Cause like, if there's not anything positive out of the interaction, what's the point? You have an interaction, you yell at somebody and you're both, you both walk away feeling negative and you know, frustrated and like not a positive thing. So it's trying to take yourself out of your own context and look at like the bigger picture and be like, is this, is this gonna be a positive outlook or is it a positive outcome, whatever I do? And is this person actually angry at me or are they just having a hard time with life? Is, I think it's important. So for you, you'll, you'll, when that moment arises, you'll stop or you'll run through your head. Like, is this going to be a positive exchange? That's one of my mantras, like in my head. Yeah, for sure. Is like, if I'm going to have this exchange, could it be a teachable moment? Like, yeah, maybe I could be like, Hey, did you know that, you know, this is a turn only lane and you're, you know, you're going straight and you could, you know, or is it just going to be something where I'm going to yell at you because I'm frustrated and you're going to yell at me because you're frustrated. And ultimately we're just going to get more frustrated because we yelled at each other and people are watching and we both kind of idiots because <laughs> we yelled at each other. And then we're going to leave and just be like, Oh, I'm so frustrated right now. So like, sometimes it's just like right away. Like, I know you want to tell that person, like, use your fucking turn signal, but is that really going to matter? Is it really going to be, especially like in my mind, all this all the time, if I yell at them and they're in their car with their windows up, with the music on maybe, are they even going to hear me? Or am I just going to be that random dude on a bike yelling at people? Do I want to be that guy? Maybe I should just shut up. <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> totally. Yeah, I mean, one of the most powerful reactions is non-reaction. Just like, fuck sure. you, and you're just like, nothing. Not like a... I like the wave a lot. I'm a big fan of the, like, smiling wave. You're like, yeah, you know? Totally. Because if maybe they were yelling, maybe they were stoked. There's always the off chance. I always think about this all the time. And someone, we're always talking about car and bike scenarios right now. But like this is always for real life. But like in a car bike scenario, and someone comes by and they got the window down, and you just hear like, rah, 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 you know, <laughs> and your initial reaction is to be like, that guy just told me to fuck off. Maybe they're like, hell yeah, brother, go get it, you know. So you're like, yeah, you too, man. Have a great day. You know, give them a smile and a wave. And on the off chance that they were being positive, they're like, sick, got you. And if they are being negative, then, you know, what's, that's what you do. You kill them with kindness. You know, someone's being a dick to you and you're just nice to them back. It just makes it worse for them. So. <laughs> yeah. One of the best ways of learning that one for me has been like someone yells something and you don't understand them. You're like, it's awesome. Cause you're like, Oh, it like, there's no, it can't stick. It just yeah. sounds like blah, blah, blah. And you're like, okay. All right, cool. You know, like you said your piece and I don't know what you said. So whatever, man. Yeah, well, it's like a, it seems like a good uh, like learning opportunity because say they do, you know, fuck you, jerk, or whatever. Like, it's so easy for me to take that personal. It's like, oh, don't, what, not me, but it's like, yeah, there's that, it's that one moment where it's like, take that ball of fire or just let it like flow right past you. Dude, I mean, I feel that, you know, I, I get like a pit in my stomach. I'll go on a ride and someone will yell at me and I'll just feel this like, pit in my stomach of frustration and it's like if I don't let that go I'm gonna feel that the whole ride so it's tough like it's oh. really hard but I think you're right like you there's that that split second where it's like either gonna be a ball of fire or you're just gonna be like let it go it's Wait, all okay so you will have a moment where you choose to let it go because for me I'll be like this thing will happen and I feel that it's this energy inside me and I don't like the way it feels so like reacting is how I'll get it out or I'll think that's how I'll get it out because there's still residual after that. Yeah, I mean, for me, I just, I, I realize that when I react, I feel worse. Mm, interesting. I never, no matter what snappy comeback you yell at them, especially on a bike in the car, 
paradigm. They're driving away. They're in a car. They're in the position of power. Right. You're just screaming into their <laughs> into their exhaust. Like I just, and this is the thing. Like from being a bike messenger for so long, I just realized that any way that I reacted that was like negative or confrontational, I never felt satisfied. I just always felt like uh, this impotent, like, you know, ant screaming at an elephant, like, leave me alone. You know, the elephant's just like totally ignoring them, walking away, like they don't even hear you. And so I just, that was, I realized, and I do have that split second where I just try and remind myself, like, of that feeling. Like, if you yell, are you going to feel better? No, don't yell. That's not to say that I don't yell. Because, I mean, sometimes you just got to, like, you know, scream your heart out at somebody at the back, you know, their truck lights receding away in the distance and just get it out. And I'm totally about that carthetic experience. But for me, it is usually like a moment. And it, it's in life, too. You know, like if it happens, confrontations like that happen in life, that's usually where I go. Is I'm like, if I react, will I come out of it feeling better or will I come out of it feeling worse? And if it's, the outcome is worse, you know, like on BART or something or on the city street and someone bumps into you and they're like, hey, fuck you, man. You know, and if I turn around and I, you know, get into a confrontation with someone and like, what we start what's again, am I going to punch someone in the face on the city street? Is it going to get some crazy thing? Like, that's not going to make me feel any better. Turning around and walking away is what's going to make me feel better. So that's generally what I'll try and get. It's, it's a tough thing. It's hard. Yeah, it, it is. And I think that's life work. Maybe that's a cop out for not having it figured out by now, but. No one has it figured out though. I mean, that's the thing. I don't have it figured out. This is just where I'm at right now, trying to deal with like everything that's happening and trying to just like be the best person and trying to do like the whole PMA thing. It's like, you can't be, you can't have positive mental attitude all the time, but you can try and spread it. And if someone comes out to you with some negative energy, sometimes it's not even reacting is the best thing you can do because it doesn't give them a hook to sink it into. And maybe they just needed that moment to be like, oh, now I feel foolish for yelling at that person. And maybe they, maybe they won't yell at the next person. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Uh, I want to talk about how you read a lot. It's, I feel like people don't know that about you. Dude, I read a ton, man. That it's, yeah, I always read as a kid. I mean, I love reading. That was my thing. Oh, really? Um, Your whole life? Oh, my whole life. Yeah. I've, oh. I've always read books. That's been like, since I was a child, I was a nerd growing up and I love nerds. And I fully admit that I was like, not a popular kid in school. I played flute in band. Hi. So I was great. Uh, I was in the AV club. Uh, I kind of killed sick. it and all that cool stuff. Um, and I read a ton of books. That was my thing. Fantasy, science fiction, nonfiction, history. I love history, like World War II, World War I history. Um, and it's just always been something that I've taken with me. And and then now in my life, especially in the last 10 years, as a, as a messenger, you got standby time. And I would always read a book. Like some messengers would crack a beer. Some messengers would go take photos. I would. I just had a book always in my bag. And then I, when I got more into the travel, it was like, what's the best way to kill a 12-hour flight across the ocean? Read a book. Uh, respect you know I, yeah and I, I i prefer reading to like say watching a netflix show like most of the time i would rather sit down with a book and like i read a lot of what i call netflix books you know uh, i read like a total Stephen king a ton of just like they're not it's it's like a netflix show you know it's it's just like it's easy fiction there's nothing really like super deep with it but i would prefer to read that and have that happen in my head than watch it on the screen because then i you know you I use my imagination to build the world and everything, but yeah, I love reading. I love trading books. If anyone ever wants a reading suggestions, hit me up. I got tons of books. Um, I've had a couple of really cool book clubs with some friends, you know, I trade books around all the time. It's, it's something that I hope I will continue to do for the rest of my life. What about what? Did, I don't know. Throw f- three to five books at us right now that you're, I don't know. Okay. Here's, here it is. 
for someone that like doesn't read a lot and has a hard time with like reading in general, what are yeah. some like kind of big print is always good. A lot of pictures is nice. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just some books. What, what do you suggest? Um, I really like right now specifically, it's a series called the silo series. It's a trilogy. It's three books. It's by a guy named Hugh Howie, H uh, O W E. Um, and it's, it's kind of like a dystopian scientific future, but essentially like humans live in these silos underground because there's been this massive, uh, you know, disaster. And it really talks a lot about like the society, what happens to society when it's kept inside and no one can leave. <laughs> um, and then you talked about how like, you know, then it gets a little science fiction-y after that where it's like describes about like how the world ended and all that. But it's a three book series. It's super engaging. Right now, I think it's really poignant because everyone's stuck inside. Um, another one that I really like is called The Brilliant Series, and I'm totally spacing on the author. Um, I don't have it, but the book's in front of me, but this is another trilogy. I love reading series, um, kind of like Netflix. Once again, I like being able to like read one book, like it, and know that there's more story to come. But The Brilliant Series is about uh, like 10% of the population has special abilities, not quite like X-Men mutant, whatever, but they have like advanced uh, abilities, but it really talks a lot about society and how society deals with this 10% that's like, like better, you know, somehow they have these enhanced abilities. I, I studied sociology in college. Um, so I really like a lot of, I like books that really explore how society deals with certain types of problems. Neither of these books are, these two series are like really deep uh, beyond that. They're really entertaining, um, good character development. Uh, also read some Edward Abbey, um, Desert Solitaire, is fantastic. If you're really bummed at being stuck at home, um, Edward Abbey, the way he describes the American Southwest, the desert, um, Monkey Wrench Gang, the sequel, Haiti Lives. It's really fantastic. It's a really good way of kind of stepping out of where you're at right now and like being involved in a really cool storyline, especially if you're into like the eco-warrior movement, like the preservation of our natural lands, but also uh, the way he describes what's going on out there is it's fantastic. Ooh, I should plug this guy, this book I'm reading right now, the book I'm currently reading um, is called Never Go Full Pie, P-A-I. It's written by a local bike writer um, who's an author. And we actually traded, he traded me the book for one of my cycling caps. Um, we connected on Instagram, but it's it's really solid. And it's cool because it's a local author, Oakland-based author. That's sick. Very cool. Jason something. I feel bad I don't have it in front of me. Uh, what was he? Oh, how many books do you think you read a year? And then do you finish the whole thing or does it do? I don't know. I don't do do part of it. I I do about three books a week. So holy shit. No, what? That's 52, a lot, a lot of books. And I love physical books. I moving for me is a really hard thing because I keep every book that I read. I mean, I'll trade books and give them away, but like, I love books. My goal in life is to have, a room, wall-to-wall, ceiling-to-floor books with a really comfy chair in the middle and a nice window I can sit in front of when I'm old and just sit and read all day. Um, but, yeah, I read a lot. I read a fair amount of books. I collect them all. I finished most books, but I'm not above. If I'm not into it, I, I will stop reading. You know, I know some people that are like, they start a book and they have to finish it, not even if they're not into it. If I'm not into it and it's not engaging, I'll come back to it. Honestly, most of the time when I, I read a book and I'm like, meh, well, I come back to it like a year or two later, and I love it. Um, so that's oh. like, that's one of the reasons I keep books. I love rereading books. Um, Cause for me rereading, like I, I read really fast. 
Um, and I definitely have a tendency to skim uh. sometimes. So I will read a book like two or three times sometimes. Like the, the Silo series, is I just finished it for the second time. Um, and I feel like I got way more out of it the second time around than I did the first time. Like the first time it was a really interesting story. It was engaging. It was like watching a movie. The second time I like read it and like stopped a bunch. I was like, whoa, like, what does that really mean? So. Well, I like, I. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's a lot. I get really excited about books. I, no, it's. So awesome. I can't even it that's not common in our like culture. I feel like you don't hear about many people writing reading that often. <laughs> yeah, I, I I definitely was a kid. I, I thought it was like a stigma. I thought there was like something wrong with me. I used to escape into books. Like when I after I got arrested when I was just graduated from high school, that whole winter that I was like working three jobs and like all of my friends had gone to college. I was stuck at home. I had to move back in with my mom. Oh, I had left. I moved out the day I turned 18, my senior year. I lived on my own my entire senior year of high school. A part of the court mandated program was you have to go like stable housing. So you had to go move back in with my mom. And I just read, like I would read like a book a day. Like I would just sit Whoa. there and just kill like, cause I was so bummed on my life. And the books were like this escape for me. That's where I would go. You know, it's like Olympia, Washington in the wintertime. It's depressing as fuck. Totally. So I would just smoke weed and read books after I got done working on the farm all day or whatever. Um, but yeah, books have always been like a huge, huge part of my life. I want to write a book one day. I feel like I got a really, a lot of really cool stories that I could put in a book. Oh. Really Do you have a writing practice at all? No. No, I, I, I did when I was younger, um, but I, I definitely don't. Something I wish that I, I was better at. That's something I think that's one of those things like 10,000 hours, right? I just need to start writing and I just need to keep writing and writing and writing. And then eventually, what do they say? You put a thousand monkeys in a room with a thousand typewriters and eventually they'll write the works of Shakespeare. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, well, actually, just because the reading thing, what type? This is probably for you. It probably doesn't matter. But is there a certain time of day that you like to read more than another? The morning, man. Oh, Coffee yeah. Coffee morning with the book in bed. That's when I know it's like a real lazy day when I'm spent. Like when I'm in bed two hours after I woke up and I've had like two cups of coffee and I'm still just sitting in bed reading. That's my favorite. I bring books on bike tour. When I go on like my own like chill bike tours, I'll bring like whatever book I'm reading, like a thick book. And just sit in my sleeping bag all morning. Like, you know, you're up with the sunrise and make some coffee in your sleeping bag and sit there and read a book for a couple of hours. And that's that's my my generally my favorite time is to is to read a book early in the morning. I don't discriminate. I read all the time, but that's my favorite. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I feel at the end of the day it can be so you're kinda tired and it's hard to focus and but I I, I, see, I get it. I mean for me too, like I really like I create the images in my head a lot. And so in the morning, I'm like, you know, you're, you're, my mind is fresh and I'm, I'm able to get like a more vivid story in my head. Whereas at the end of the day, you got a million things going on. And by the time you get to the book, it's like, you got to, I got to like, for me personally, I have to like calm my head down so that I can actually engage in the book. And it takes a while. Yeah. Cool. I like that. Uh, it, that's just cool to hear from another. I co completely understand. Oh, uh, you know, all day. Like it's like a wind up toy. Your brain just gets like wound up, wound up, wound up, wound up, tighter and tighter all day. Yeah, ex totally. <laughs> um, I guess like the, so the writing thing is kind of interesting to me. It's something that you're curious about, but haven't actually started practicing, but you do have an art practice right now. Is that true? Right? Yeah, yeah. definitely. I, I, I mean, I've always doodled my entire life. And then 
over the course of the last couple of years, uh, you know, started to get a little more popularity. It's, I mean, it's something, it's kind of like the writing thing. I was very insecure about it. I think anybody that creates is really insecure about the things that they create. And let's be honest, the reason that I haven't started writing is because I'm really insecure about my ability as a writer to get everything out there. But with the art- But wait, I'm really- gonna interrupt you here. You do not have to show any work, period. So when sure. a, when anybody's new at anything, there's no obligation to show it to the world. So that neutralizes this fear of like rejection from it. It's like, just start making the work. And after a while, you'll be like, oh, maybe that. And then also time separated from when something is produced to at any point after you yeah. get a different perspective on it too. And you can see it a, a little yeah. more clearly. That is an excellent point. That's a really good point. You're right. I should really start because I think that's the thing is I'm like, no one's going to like it. But it's like, I don't have to show it to you. Don't show anybody the first stuff. It is going to suck. Everything that we start in the beginning sucks. And the only way to know that you want to get good at something is to be okay with sucking. And that beginning shit phase is how you know that you're actually in alignment with this practice or this this thing that you want to accomplish because you've suffered through the crappiest part right at the beginning. You're like, this sucks. This is hard. This doesn't look good. This doesn't sound right. And then eventually tiny, 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 tiny. You're like, Oh, it always kind of sucks. It just looks better. <laughs> you know, it's funny you say that. Cause with the art, I was, uh, I moved into an art studio a couple of years ago in San Francisco and I was going through all my old, like, our black books and all the old art. And I was like, man, this stuff fucking sucks. <laughs> you know, but you're right. It's like stuff that I was drawing and doodling like 15 years ago. And it, it does, it, 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 the incremental steps, 10,000 hours, you know, you spend your time doing it. And honestly, I think my art is still kind of weird. And like, I'm not, I'm not, that's the thing is you're never fully satisfied with your own art. So you're constantly trying to like improve it and like do better things with it. But yeah, you're right. Start, start doing it now and suck. And then it's okay to suck. And what did you just say? The, the time from when it's created to the time that when it's viewed, that's, that's fucking real, man. Or that's, there's like these techniques or these tactics to be able to perceive your work um, separated from yourself because we create the things. We have this knotted up ball of bullshit connection to it because we judge the shit out of it. We only see the negatives, blah, 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 blah. But anything, yeah. this works for music. Well, specifically I'm thinking visual art is you make a, a piece of any form and you can, time is a huge thing, whether it's like, put it away, don't look at it, a day, two, the more time, the better, you see it different. And the other thing is you can look at it in a mirror because it automatically flips it on you. And another version is to look at it through a photograph or a video. It's a trip. You're like these layers of separation. Dude, that's, yeah, man. I've never even thought about that. But like, especially the mirror one makes like, a ton of sense because you look at it from the one context as the creator and the mirror is the mirror image. So you're obviously, you're going to get like this 180 degree flip of whatever you were looking at. And it's still the same thing, but like, you're just looking at it totally different. Dude, I'm going to try that. That is fucking sick. Yeah. And the mirror one is really good for just kind of overall perception of like composition. You'll be like, Oh, this is so gross looking now. Dude, like you'll be like, why I does this look kind of weird? Was that? That's such a good idea. I have such a hard time with composition. That's actually, I, I started doing digital art. Uh, I got like an iPad like oh, late last year. Oh, is and that how you made the thing? The like yeah, yeah, animation thing, dude. Yeah, the animation with your style is like such a good match. 
and yeah, it's I can cool. tell that it's like not that hard to do it because it's just the steps of it, but it pairs really good. So I please do more of that. I, I plan on it. Yeah, it, it took me it, the learning curve was kind of steep actually because it's all about like the, the layers and like the way that you set it up. And once I figured it out, it's it's not that hard. It's time consuming, which is which is fine because I enjoy yeah, it. But yeah, it's cool. I, I the digital art is cool. I was really against it for a while, but with composition and everything and the ability to kind of manipulate the image is is super super great and then also the animation aspect of it is like that's just fun <laughs> yeah oh, it, well and then you're adding all these dimensions to it also yeah, yeah. i'm super pumped on it but i mean yeah it's the difference like what that's kind of what we were talking about before is like with life and everything it's like take yourself out of the context that you're operating in and look at it from a different perspective and i like i never it's funny i do that with a lot of things in my life but i never thought about doing it with my art until you just brought it up right now. So thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, far out. How how was, I know for me, having like a space for making work is like so important. I can't even, dis it's, it is of utmost importance. I have to have a space to create work in. Specifically, its own space. You know, it, you work with what you have. If it's just a corner, that's fine. But if it's a closet, that's better. If it's a room, that's better. If it's its own building, that's better. Like, just its own space. How did that change your work? Like, how was that experience for you? It's great. I mean, it's it's something I'm really cognizant of because I haven't had it for the last two months. Um, I live in Oakland, and my studio space is in San Francisco. Oh wow! Um, really? Yeah. Really? Yeah, and it's a, a it's a shared space. Um, with a screen printing setup down there, um, and like my desk, and then the guy I share it with his desk. And we were, our schedules were such that we almost were never in there at the same time. So it was like my space. Um, and it was amazing. I feel like it got more serious. My art got more serious and I was able to create a lot more. And the things that I created, I was a lot happier with. Um, and it was just really good. And then it's being stuck at home. Like I can, I've actually had a really hard time creating and being creative. And it's, it's been really frustrating because it's like, I have all this time this is when I should be able to be super creative, like, you know, nothing but time and I'm, I'm here, but it's been tough because, you know, it's just, it's my house. There's the distractions of my house. My partner's here, her son's here. And it's like, it is what it is. You know, we, we're stuck in this kind of shelter in place, but it's something that I took for granted, I guess, after having the studio and then not having it. It's like, man, I really miss this. You know, I, it is really important to have a space. And I'm actually in process of creating a space in my basement. Um, I have like a bike room down there that I'm going to put a desk in and just kind of make sure that I have a space from now on because I'm kind of tired of being frustrated and not being able to feel super creative because I don't have space. So I, I like it enough and I acknowledge it's important enough that I'm going to make another one. Yeah. Very cool. Totally. The, it's almost like I was going to say like, once you get a studio, you're like, Oh, it's, it's almost like not even just taking it serious, but almost respecting the practice. You're like, okay, yeah. now, now you have your own place. Like, so the interaction with it automatically changes and it can be, it can feel so amazing when you first get a space. Cause you're like, I can do whatever the fuck I want in this place. Like I want to draw on the walls. I want to fucking just lay on the ground. I want to draw a picture. Like fucking, I'm going to just dance to music. Like anything goes. I like being able to leave projects out too. Ah, cool. I, that was the thing. That's the thing that gets me is like, when you work at home, especially like in my house, we have like, you know, the, the big table in the big room where I'm sitting at right now. And it's everything. It's the homework table. It's the kitchen table. It's the, you know, it used to be the sewing table. It's, it's everything. It's the, you know, the great room table. But I means I have to pick everything up because I'm not going to leave 
all of my stuff out. But that's what I love the most about a studio is you can, at least for me, leave all of the projects just there in the state that you left them. And the, I mean, I, I generally do a lot of like, I work for a little bit on one project and then the next one and the next one. I feel like that's how I'm the most creative, kind of feeds off of each other. But that's really hard when I have to pick everything up. Whereas if I'm in a studio, I can move from like, oh, I'm gonna draw on this bag to like, oh, I'm gonna work on this digital art to this poster to this helmet to like, you know, some screen printing. And it's just all there. It's, it's a hot mess, but it's my hot mess. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, totally. I mean, that gets my head going on having a studio space, like I'll leave stuff out. But then if I leave it out for too long, it's like basically what happens is because I think it's specifically because I'm such a visual person. I like being able to look at everything. But then when I look at it consistently, I stop seeing it. And then it's like another thing and another thing. And then it's just like it's like all this noise, this visual noise. And then when you clean it all off and you have a blank desk, you're like, oh, I'm so free to kind of best thing in the world. It's just interesting. Like they they all serve a purpose and they're almost like time limits on them. But oh, yeah. it, this is actually a technique is if you're feeling kind of stuck on a thing, you know, maybe that bag is just kind of like uh, or you're just avoiding it for a long time. Just kind of hide it from yourself for a minute and it just will. It's kind of that it's, it's similar to the other thing. You just stop seeing it. Yeah. The time, the different context. Or if you can put it up, put it somewhere else and see it in a different way, you'll be like, oh, like I can yeah. kind of like, you just notice it, you know? Yeah, I, I I dig that. And that's kind of what I miss is the ability to have that, being able to like spread things out and like hide them and not, and not have them around. So it's crazy. It's like once you go studio, you don't want to go back. But yes. also tough, I, I never made art for like a living or like to really, for any kind of monetary gain for a really long time. And then, you know, I, cause I had TCB and I, I run, still run a logistics software company. Um, and I had all the sponsorships and everything, but then in the last couple of years, as an, as being like an influencer, I started to be like, okay, well, I need to really try and make the art into something that is a consistent, you know, moneymaker in a way that if I, it has to sustain itself. Like if I'm going to pay for the studio and I spend my time in the studio, I need to be able to like justify that and be able to like pay rent and like make some money off of it. And so that's actually been a really, a really hard thing to kind of wrap my head around, kind of in the same way that I like love racing bikes and then turn that into a job. I kind of love doing art and then I've been slowly trying to turn that into a job. I'm still like trying to see if that's something that's going to be like a, a long-term thing, but it's, it's interesting to take something that you do for a passion and then try to turn it into like kind of work, which, you know, you want to have your work be your passion, but when it actually happens, it can, it's a little disconcerting sometimes. How did you deal with that? I mean, you essentially did the same thing. You, you turned this like pet project. I remember Cadence in the beginning was just like, just like something you did for fun. It was something for all the friends and like, and then it became something much bigger than that. Yeah, I think like there's a few things there. Like one's work, one's personal work, one's art. Art is a super like interesting, sticky, tricky word too. But I think that from my experience is like trying to make money from art is like the ultimate way to like put that fire out it just it puts uh, yeah, too much is. pressure on it it's like expectation you get you don't want to make any changes you don't want to experiment you're like oh this needs to be like j-o-b and it's you're just like fuck so i think that it's it's 100 percent possible to do that but it, it's not an all or nothing thing like i wouldn't say you know like Keep it light and make things that are not for sale. Make things that you don't need to show anybody. Like it's, it keeps like 
play is this super important thing that is just so critical for uh, making new things, for being able to have fun with the practice, to interact with it, like cut paper, like glue things, paint, like try different things that just feel interesting and don't worry about them being art because art and job and money and shit, it fucking kills it. And it, it's the it surefire way to put it out. So it's, and this is stuff that I've kind of just learned that, you know, all play is like, at one point it was easy. Right now it's kind of hard. So it's, it's interesting to interact with all the different ways. And then also just prioritizing it with time. Like, totally. like I kind of forced myself to paint recently. And it's, you know, it's like not, when I was younger, when I first got that, first got a studio, you're just like, so I was so driven and it just like happened and I, I couldn't not make things. And yes. it, it's, I still have that, but it's, I'm now I make a lot of things. So it's not like I'm starved for making things. It's more like, okay, I, now I get to choose which things I point the, the radar towards. And it's really interesting when like making work art is something that I, I it's almost, it's like an extra, it's a practice. Practicing yeah. things is not always fun. Like it, there's moments, but there's also moments that suck. And I think knowing that, doing it, even when it's difficult, just going through the motions, it helps work through the like that block, that ice, that resistance, and it just keeps it regular. And the, as long as there's an interaction with it, it's good. And, and also before I end this rant is um, there was, I don't remember who this quote was, but um, it was essentially, I quote, is um, make one should make art to fulfill the soul, not to make money or making art is not to make money. It's to it's to satiate the soul. And it's a yeah. really interesting way to interact with it because you're like, oh, because just like you is like, oh, I got to make money off of it with this stuff. Like, it's this thing. I, I think this is what I want to do, but it's fucking hard and blah, blah, blah. And then you're like, wait a minute. What if it's not about making money at all? You're like, well, okay, well, like, well, what is it then? And the relationship to it is just like, it's just fucking changes. It's different. Yep. It, it totally, it flips it around. That's a, that's a really solid perspective, my dude. And I think that the keeping it, the keeping it fun and like keeping it at play is super important. Cause that's, I get stuck cause you know, you're like everything I make, someone's going to see. But I, I think that's, that's actually some advice that I'm going to take is just start to create art that no one sees because that's what I used to do. I mean, that's what we did. You know, you, when you started creating, you, no one ever saw your art. No one cared. You're just doing it because you thought it was cool and it looked cool and you were creating something that you really enjoyed. Yeah. And although now I get this weird thought of, uh, you know, when you're, you're before you're doing, you're like making things. And I guess, no, you're right. It's not it's I, I wasn't thinking like, <clears throat> oh, the audience first. It was like, oh, I want to make this thing. And then you want to show it because you're excited about it. It's not like. Oh, I'm going to make something to show people that how daunting is that? Yeah. It's, I, get, I mean, I guess, I mean, for me, I always started with like graffiti and like street art and you would, you wouldn't, I would never put it places where people could see it. You know, it was just like, I would put it, I wanted to see it on the wall and I wanted to see what it looked like, you know, especially when you paint graffiti. I was never one of those graffiti writers that would go for the heavens and like go for the big spot. I wasn't barely a graffiti writer at all, but I would always just go to some cutty spot just because I wanted to see it and I wanted to like, you know, try something new or see if it worked. I think I got to get a look back to that. I never really, I did not yeah. think about it. 
Totally. And then uh, how that distills down is it's all just mark making. And there's, you know, for me, I'll get caught up on like, oh, it doesn't look real or right or that eye is in the wrong. It's just about making marks. It doesn't have to, there's no right. There's no wrong. It's just it really is how it feels to produce the work is 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 the gold. And, and actually, graffiti is one of these things that's so awesome because it's it's so ephemeral. So for me, then there's no pressure because that shit's going to go away. So there's it's so light. You're like, fuck it. I'm just going to like do whatever the hell. And then that's really how I'll I'll get like you'll touch that razor's edge of flow, which you mentioned from racing. Uh, I can get from making work in this one certain sort of way that I'm always chasing. Like, what's that one way where it's like it's so easy. It's so effortless. It's so good. And if you have the chance to look back on it later, you're like, how the fuck did I do that? Like, what the fuck? And you try, oh, I got to try and do that again. And it's hard and it doesn't look right. Yeah. And it's tight and it fucking, what the hell? Yeah. And Rand. Well, I mean, I, I, that's it. The search for Stoke is, I never really thought about it until right now. But I mean, I feel like I actually haven't felt that with art in a little bit. And that's something that to really strive for is not to make art for anything other than to find that feeling and to find that focus. Cause you know what I'm talking about when you're creating and, it just flows. It just comes out and you're like, this is fucking amazing. And like you said, you look back and you're like, how did I do that? And you have no idea. But in that moment, it's just such a pure like focus on what you're doing. Yeah. And so then there's this interesting thing of how do you kind of corral those moments of like bliss, if you will, because I'll do those. I can get into those like easy enough, but corralling them is a whole other thing. Like I'll just walk around the yard with chalk and just write on shit and it's just fun and free and it looks interesting and whatever, but it's not, it's very like dithery. It's very yeah. like, it, 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 you're just out there doing something just cause it's fun. Yeah. And I guess a little bit in my head is like, well, wait, like why not sort of, I don't know here. I don't really know the answer to this is like, why not like put that on like a, a canvas or on a, on a sheet of paper or like kind of package it a little bit more. I feel um, the same way. Like you feel guilty almost. You're like, I'm wasting this feeling right now on like drawing on, you know, chalk on walls or like just doodling on a piece of paper. Like I, I'm drawing matchbooks all the time and I'm like, what am I doing? But I enjoy it so much. Like you've done drawing on a matchbook and I'm like, this is so fucking cool. But then I'm like, wow, what the fuck am I doing? You feel guilty. And I feel like we shouldn't feel guilty for enjoying art and finding that feeling. It's, it's tough though. Cause if you do try and monetize it and make it away, then there will be this thing where you're like, Oh, I should, I should put this on something and like sell it or something. But I need to get away from that and just do it for the sake. No, I think, I think I, I think I, so the, the dither, the play, the matchbook, the chalk, those are moments that we need to cultivate just that experience of making like that because what that will do, those are essentially the exercises that those are like the fun push-ups that allow us to do the race. Weird analogy, but I think you understand like no, no, I the, totally get it. The play is the soil that when it's time to do the work, that's the like commission, the like piece, the whatever. Right. That other stuff is this like foundation that you pull one will pull off of like subconsciously or, you know, emotionally or maybe yeah. it's even referenced like that other stuff is of utmost importance. And then the other stuff is kind of like the the, the commissiony things are 
It's kind of just like the work. It's like the the job ish. I mean, you gotta if you're gonna do anything in life, you gotta support yourself and you gotta you know pay your rent and you gotta you know take care of your responsibilities. There's gotta be a job in you know in life in general. So I, I get that. I like that analogy too. I think that's a really good way of looking at it. And I think personally, that's something that I've lost in the last little bit is like that, like just doing it for the sake of doing it. And I looking at it in that sense of like, you're, it's like the soil, you know, it's like that. This is like the training, the, the fun times when you're just kind of out doing it because you like it. And it's the repetitive motion or the practice is that's solid. I dig that. Hey, I, I'm too intimidated to actually ride these. These look so fucking <laughs> I haven't cool. ridden yours either. They're still, they're still fucking sitting on the shelf. <laughs> that's In the, case- you see, that's the kind of project that I fucking love, dude. That was so much fun. Wait, so what was it about this that, that you like felt that connection to? I think it's a couple things. One of them was like, I felt like I really wanted to represent myself really well to you as an artist oh. because I really liked your art. I mean, I, I still like your art. But at the time I was like, I'm going to get these fucking super sick shoes from Dustin. I got to make my shoes just as sick. But it wasn't because I was like, I got to sell these shoes. I got to make sure people like it. It was just like, as an artist, I want to show, like, I want to have a good showing to you because you're going to have a good showing to me. And I, yeah, I just really enjoyed it. I can, like the whole thing of like, you know, getting the boxes and everything, the whole exchange. I'm actually doing something like that now where a couple of friends have been drawing on a half sheet filling a sheet halfway up and then mailing them a sheet and they've been mailing me their sheet and then we finish each other's art. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, that was like the box and everything. It was like, it was just cause it was fun. It was like, this wasn't for anything other than for us to like enjoy each other's art and like have a cool thing. I really enjoyed that. Uh, hey, I'm down to do uh let's do a paper trade. That sounds fucking it's so much fun. How do you do it? You, like one person does half and the other person does the other half? Let's see. I got a, Here's one right now. Oh, see, he is wearing pants. Now the audience is bummed. <laughs> Not all fun and games in California, but like something like this. Oh, like I got, sick. You know, this is what he sent me. I sent him one that had my stuff all on the top and left the bottom blank. And then, What's, what size is the piece of paper? Doesn't matter. Like eight and a half by 11. Yeah, Mine perfect. And I think, I mean, like, I'm probably never going to show this to anyone except for him. And you guys saw it without any drawings on it. But like, this isn't for anybody but, but us. You know? Yeah, it's just like a fun collaboration. Yeah, I mean, it's also like, I don't know, I've been, I I sell stoke packs and stuff because I really think that it's cool to do that. But like, he sent me, like, I'm really into trucks and stuff. You know, it's a bunch of cool, like, off road, off road, you know, it's just like, it's a way to connect with with your friends and and stoke each other out, especially right now. I think that's super important. Yeah. Art for art's sake, you know, like, that's, that's fucking sick. It's like zine culture is kind of what I think of. Yeah. Dude, I fucking love zine culture. Like, that's one thing that, like, social media, I feel like, totally killed, right? You used to, like, trading zines. That's how I figured out about, like, bike messaging, bike messaging style. Like, all that was through zines. You know, like, especially, like, the DIY punk culture. All those things. That was all zines. Dude, Microcosm Press in Portland and just, like, the zine culture. And now it's cool that everything, you can share so much about everything on social media. But I feel like that idea of mailing zines to your friends and like trading zines with people is like kind of gone. I, I miss that. Uh, well, we could, it doesn't, it's still totally able to do that. It's not gone. Uh, but another thing is I like the, the thought of like, okay, so like what if we think of like Instagram is a way is like your, 
your Xerox machine or whatever, like how could we treat, maybe it's a post or a story or a thing like make a zine that happens to be on social media. Like maybe it is just photocopy Xerox and then it's a carousel and like each carousel is like a Xerox yeah. image. Like I always love the instructional zines. We should make instructional zines about how to do something, you know, and think about it. You've got what, 10 images in Instagram. So oh, is that can, what it is? It's 10 on that? Yeah, yeah. But That's I mean, a lot. Me, I, was, I learned so much stuff, you know, like stupid stuff, like using dental floss to fix the holes in your pants from riding through, your, you know, your pants. Oh, I, cool. I put that stuff through zines. And I, you know, I feel like that'd be, that's a good way of like bringing that back. I should do that. We should yeah. That. We cool should zine. both try and make a zine post, which it sounds like a shitload of work, actually. <laughs> <laughs> 10 but, things. I, yeah. I think it'll be fun. I think it would be a good time. It is. It's that's, but that's the thing. Once again, is you're like, I thought the exact same thing. As soon as I said that, I was like, fuck, I gotta do ten images, like da 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 da. Because you immediately start to quantify it as like work. Yeah, right. But it's cool because it would have a cover, and then like, I mean, I I I think the easiest way for me to do it would just be to make a zine, a zine. and yeah. then just oh, then you'd make a physical copy, and then you would just take the photos, scan and flip it. it. Yeah. The whole thing, I fuck. You remember back in the day when FedEx before the to get the card, the FedEx Kinko's card. Oh yes. Oh man, see that was my favorite, dude. Trading cards with people and be like, you got the manager card. Let me borrow the manager card. Oh shit. Going in there, get the manager card, and now you got to put your actual credit card in there, and you can't do it anymore. Back in the day, that was like half the fun of making the zine was like figuring out how to make the zine without actually spending any money. (laughs) The scam. Dude, the court, the fucking four fifty Golden Gate. Uh, you used to be able to you used to be able to use their copier a bunch, the courthouse copier in San Francisco. That's that sick. <laughs> That's so sick. Uh fuck dude. I don't know. What do you is there anything else you want to talk about or tell people about or anything? I mean not really. Just get out there. I think yeah, there is something. And this is something that I've been dealing with a lot, and I think a lot of people are dealing with this. You know, I had a, a whole year plan, right? And I've I, I was, I'm supposed to be in Spain right now. I'm supposed to be racing or just finishing, hopefully, the, the Badlands uh, Ultra Endurance Race in the Spanish Peninsula. It's supposed to be in Greece two weeks before that. There's all this stuff we had planned, and it's a bummer that we can't. I mean, this whole situation is, like, obviously, it's tough. But I think there's a lot of positivity to come out of it. And I don't know, for me personally, I had this moment about a month ago where I, I started to get, like, really bummed, obviously. It's like, fuck, this is hard. What am I going to do? And then I was like, wait, this is a great opportunity for me personally, to experience California. And I live here, but I travel so much. It's like, I'm just going to go on bike tours all summer. I'm going to go spend a bunch of time in my truck, hopefully not break it four-wheeling. And I'm going to just kind of reassess all of my goals and perspectives and then try and, like, find a plan that works for this year. And I think that that's something that I want to encourage everyone to do is, like, I know that everything is in flux and everything's changing and, like, especially with regulations, you're not able to do a lot of things, but you know, it's okay that everything has changed. I think that the way our, we were living in our world needed a bit of a change and who knows what that change is going to be in terms of like us as human beings and everything. But there's a way to allow this situation to help change you personally for the better. And so don't be afraid to like, take a step back. Like we were talking about, take yourself out of your context and maybe take a step down. I was always like, international travel is the be all end all. This is why I want to see all every, my goal is to see every country in the world, you know? And I was like, I'm going to check another couple countries off my list this year. 
and I was like, wait, like I was looking at being like stuck in California as being a downgrade. Like, why would I want to spend my whole year in California? But now I'm really trying to embrace it as like, I get the opportunity to spend a whole year exploring California, my backyard. And I granted California is an amazing backyard to get to explore. Not everyone lives in California. And I acknowledge that, but maybe try and look at this in the you know, PMA. Like it, it doesn't have to be amazing all the time. It kind of means things will be, things will turn out okay. Things will get better. Try to look at it like this and think about ways to, to change your plans, change your context and make this a positive thing as much as you can. I know that it's tough, trust me, I feel you, but I think that this could end up being a positive change for a lot of people in a way that it takes us well out of our comfort zone and our context and forces us to reassess kind of where you're at with your life and what you're doing. Very well put, yeah. Here, here. Well, thank you, Chaz, for this. This was awesome. I appreciate your time. Dude, seriously, I, you giving me some really amazing perspectives on art. I know that you had a lot of questions, but the couple of questions that I asked you was like, I've been really struggling with a lot of these issues personally with like being a, being a creator and being an artist and like with a job and everything. So thank you for a lot of the perspectives because it's definitely stuff that I would not have thought of. And it's nice to hear it from somebody that I know and trust, but just like a, a different voice, you know, it's like, hey, think about it this way. Yeah, yeah, totally. That alternate perspective. Anytime, too. Hit me up anytime. I love talking about that shit because I think about it way too much. <laughs> right? Studio time. You really get deep in that head sometimes. Yeah. All right, players. We will see you next uh, week. Uh, same time. Uh, same channel. All right. Peace. Later.